Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Andrew Weaver, former MLA and leader of the Green Party of BC, and a highly respected and well-published climate scientist. Weaver has authored and co-authored hundreds of journal articles on climate-related topics, and he has previously served as a lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This particular episode is from the vault, as it were, as we recorded back in November after COP26, and as it turned out, I didn't resume the podcast series until a couple of months later in the new year. Anyway, here we are. Weaver paints both a realistic and optimistic picture of climate action in Canada, and since our conversation, we've seen further progress with Canada's first emissions reduction plan published pursuant to our new climate accountability law as well as $12 billion in new spending for climate action in the budget, with additional funding for the adjacent critical mineral strategy. In response to the recent emissions reduction plan, Weaver wrote, Canada reclaims international leadership on climate file, an outstanding plan. And while Weaver is a bit more pessimistic in our conversation about a lack of good faith cooperation in our politics at times, there are still reasons to be optimistic on that front as well, I think, after the Liberal NDP supply agreement. All that's to say, here's Andrew Weaver. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you for having me on. We recently saw COP26 conclude, and the president and UK minister Sharma made keeping 1.5 alive a central theme of those talks. You, on the other hand, have effectively said it's dead. You said, let's be clear, one and a half degrees is unattainable, it's not possible, and it never has been, in your humble opinion. I mean, you've raised concerns about setting up false hope. So what's the message we should be sending? Well, yeah, thank you for for raising that. Look, let's go back to where the 1.5 degrees came from. Um, As you'll recall, going back into the previous Conference of Parties COP meetings, uh, small island states have been quite concerned about sea level rise. And and in fact, their state's no longer uh, being above sea level. So they were pushing the international community to actually take much more dramatic and stringent steps to keep warming to 1.5. The problem is uh, that was pitched at the United Nations Framework Convention of Climate Change Level. And then, of course, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was tasked by the member states, i.e. the politicians in the UNFCCC, to come up with a report to identify pathways to meet one and a half degrees. So that number was not a scientific number. The request for the report was not a scientific request. It was a political request to appease the concerns of small island nations. When the scientific report was published, and of course, I've I've read it and have copy, and I know most, if not all, of the people who wrote it. If you look carefully, you'll see that the only means and ways of achieving 1.5 degrees, all assumptions aside, and I would argue that it's even the assumptions have, we can challenge a lot of those. We would have to appeal to negative emissions on the scale that is unparalleled using technologies that don't exist and have are not even in the pipeline. And we'd literally have to decarbonize everything in eight years. It's just not going to happen. And we know that the world has warmed by 1.1 degrees. We know we have about 0.2 degrees of permafrost carbon feedback coming in. That takes it to 1.3. We know that if we do nothing else but keep the existing, I'm I'm pointing to the sun through my window, the existing uh, levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere fix at today's levels, we have another 0.6 degrees warming. If we suddenly were to eliminate the combustion of all fossil fuels, we'd actually get another spike of warming too, because of the fact that the cooling associated with the aerosols would, would, would go away. And so, you know, it is just folly to think that we can somehow over the next eight years keep warming to one and a half degrees. 
it should be all hands on deck for three degrees, two degrees possible. Three degrees likely we won't we will be very easily to keep if we if we get on with it. But one and a half is irresponsible. And why why I've been so concerned about this is that the whole narrative of we have 12 years left to save the planet has emerged. And I, as somebody who's engaged with youth for many, many decades, realize and have met thousands of youth. And there is a general sense of climate grief and climate despair out there. And it doesn't help when you have people who should know better putting up a straw person argument about how we're going to meet 1.5 degrees, creating this sense of false hope, knowing that eight years is going to come and go. And guess what? We're going to break one and a half degrees. But we knew that anyway. So the you get one of two reactions there. You know, there will be people who will be very despondent about that. And, and I know that now because I know mental health is a very big issue in the climate field, and particularly with youth. And I, I think it behooves our political establishment to be truthful and honest in public discourse. This is an important issue. It's one that is going to last for generations. And you, when I say you, our political establishment will be judged by history, not for what you're doing, but for what you've said. And what we're hearing is people saying that we're going to keep warming to one and a half degrees, keeping it alive when that is not in the cards. And I don't know a single serious scientist in my community who believes that we can. And I worry, I suppose, about defeatism leading to even greater policy inertia and people throwing mm-hmm. up their hands and saying, well, if you've said this is the goal and we have failed to meet this goal, then what's the point of doing anything? And so to set up a, an achievable target is important. I do think setting really ambitious targets remains important and pushing governments to do as much as we reasonably can do. But I do worry when I when I read your comment and then I read the surrounding sort of math behind your comment that you were outlining and then some other author, authors defended your assertion with and, and set out the same math. It, it is worrying this idea that we set ourselves up for defeat, whereas the message should instead be something along the lines of, every hundredth of a degree matters, we need to do everything we can, and let's go as hard as we can. You're absolutely right. That is what the science can tell you. Science will say that every hundredth of a degree matters. So anything we can do is good. And that is why, actually, I view climate change through the lens of the potential opportunity for innovation that it creates. You can view it through the lens of hopelessness and despair, or you can say, okay, this is a big challenge. This is a great challenge for humanity. But we've faced these before. And what climate change is presenting itself is an opportunity for innovation, for prosperity, for creativity, uh, for it's an empowerment of individual because we are all part of the problem. And therefore, each and every one of us is also part of the solution. And anything we do matters and is helpful. And that is rewarding because when you know that what you're doing matters, you know that you're contributing to the solution. And that's the kind of mindset we get because there is no magic number of 1.5 or 1.6. And I agree with you that targets are important, but targets without being coupled with policy pathways to meet them are useless. And when you have targets that are impossible to reach, no matter what policy pathway you put in place, I think it's disingenuous to continue down that narrative. You know, be truthful. We can deal with this problem. The world isn't going to end. We're not going to turn into Venus and have everybody burn up. Humanity is not going to collapse from climate change. 
you know, geopolitical instability will be a big deal. But we've had geopolitical instability since humans first started walking on this planet. So, so again, let's just get on with it. And when you frame it in the context of opportunity and you've lauded Canada's climate plan, you've been quite optimistic, at least since December 2020's update. And we've only seen it strengthen since then from that December plan to then the budget in the spring and to our fall election platform. Should we be as optimistic, though, about global efforts? Should should we be optimistic about the results of COP26? I I am, actually, because I I truly believe that this was a, you know, I've never been to a COP and I never will go to a COP. I don't think COPs, uh, I think uh, a lot of the the, the important hard work in a COP is done before the COP actually happens. And so what we have is protests and demonstrations and side tables and discussions and announcements. It's a big media fest, the COPs are. But a lot of the hard work is done in the back rooms leading up to it. Uh, I was quite pleased with COP. Uh, you, you know, the reason why I was pleased is is that we, you know, we have some agreement on deforestation. We have some kind of agreement per se on methane, and and there is generally a strengthening of of of, of country commitments. But more importantly, uh, I think Canada has reclaimed its spot as a leader on this file, and now we can look to our friends in Australia. Used to be us, but now it is Australia who are viewed as the laggards internationally. So they got to deal with that. You know, Canada's plan has actually, it's really good. I mean, when you ask the question, what, you know, there are targets, but there are also policy pathways. The elimination of coal and electricity is huge. The aggressive 75% ZEV standard by 2030, it's huge. 25% of our emissions come from transportation. That's huge. The move towards elimination of allowing thermal coal to be exported from Canada and through our ports is huge. The discussions that are beginning to happen about increased carbon pricing, and in particular, the the coupling them with border tax adjustments and working with other uh, international nations to ensure that collectively, there's a coalition of those who are aggressively reducing emissions. If you have the border tax adjustments in there, we can talk about that if you want. You 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 can go it alone, and you are not penalizing the, those societies who are actually aggressively uh, reducing emissions. Uh, I mean, there are so many, uh, you know, the, the uh, public transportation initiatives in the, in the federal plan. The, this was something that I, as I as I mentioned in the election campaign, have been waiting for for most of my life as a climate scientist since nineteen eighties. We have the same in BC now too. We have a, a superb plan. And uh, ultimately, that's why I got into politics, is I was, I was concerned that we were having way too much political opportunism and far too little uh, attention being paid to these important intergenerational issues that span multiple electoral cycles as opposed to one. But uh, for the first time in my political, my political, my scientific career, which has spanned an eight-year political career, I feel quite optimistic that we actually have governments recognizing they have to start doing emissions because they know that people want them to. And no political party in Canada, at least, and in many countries, can survive a campaign without an aggressive climate policy. Even the Conservatives came out with a form of a climate plan. It was barely a plan. And there was a very bizarre kind of carbon bank account, personal bank account that... (laughs) I chuckled about that in the sidebar because this is the same party that was profoundly troubled about the uh, long gun registry and made a, made hay over that. But here we're, proposed, we're proposing a, the, a, a kind of analogous long gun registry on steroids, which is for a, all of your expenses pers- for all of your expenses, a personal <laughs> carbon account. Like not everyone has a long gun. 
but everyone has a personal carbon account. It would be, it was outrageous, but it was a plan and that was good. <laughs> and at least there wasn't the opposition to carbon pricing as a basic right. mechanism for tackling climate change. And for my part, when we look at the federal plan here in Canada, I got involved in politics in part because, you know, the Stephen Harper government was not doing enough on this issue and no federal government, frankly, in Canadian history had done anything of particular seriousness on this issue and mattered a great deal to me to follow the evidence and follow the science. And in fits and starts, we have. And the first battle around carbon pricing was a significant one. And to it have was, won that yes. fight really mattered. And But I, I, I've heard you speak about the December 2020 climate plan in particular, and, yeah. and I share your view that it, there was a lot of advocacy leading up to that a lot of pushing, a lot of cajoling, a lot of public advocacy. I remember in the wake of that IPCC report calling a climate emergency debate to, again, use yeah. every tool I could to elevate this conversation yeah. in Parliament. I'd introduced a net zero by 2050 bill after speaking yeah. with folks at the um, Committee on Climate Change in the UK, and they, they were ahead of this on us, and I thought we should catch up. And so, you know, using my voice where I could, but that December climate plan was finally, I could point to it and say, okay, we are going to blow past our the existing 2030 target. We're going to need to establish a much more ambitious 2030 target. That's great. And yeah. and then the budget only pushed it further. And then, you know, the, the <laughs> campaign promises we made. Yeah, yeah, we'll push it even further. And there's a criticism that we always get. Yeah. And it's Canada has never met a target that it has set. It's a regular talking point. I've, I've heard it from conservatives now, which is hilarious to me. But it's a regular talking point, certainly from those on the left of us. And my answer back. So I wonder what your answer back. But my answer back is. Well, 2030 is a decent amount of time away, and the existing target that we were that we adopted when we first formed government was 512 megatons. And as of budget 2021, this is before the promises in the platform. The analysis from ECCC takes us to 468. So, if all policies hold, we're on trajectory to meet that target and then some, which is why we've set a new target. So it's disingenuous yeah. to say we haven't met a target when we've got policies in place to meet the target. And 2030 just hasn't come yet. But I, is, is that an adequate answer? Do you think I should have a different one? Uh, no, I don't I don't like that answer because um, the reason why is that target that was set was actually not the liberal target. It was the previous government's target set under the Harper uh, era. True, so very it's true. Not not very ambitious. <laughs> uh, not 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 something I would be I would be trumpeting as uh as a, an example, not a sufficient success. target, but a target that policies that have been put in place would meet. Good. Okay, I accept that. Um, <laughs> I, always, <laughs> I always pivot to the UK and to Kyoto. To the UK, over forty percent below nineteen ninety levels now. Think about that. The UK, forty percent below not two thousand and seven levels, nineteen ninety levels. This is remarkable. It's because they've recognized that this is a very serious issue. And there was a lot of North Sea gas being explored. And uh, sure, okay, Margaret Thatcher went to war against the unions in the coal mining sector. But they really have taken steps to decarbonize um, their energy systems as, as best as possible. I look at the Kyoto Protocol. Now, people don't realize this. The Kyoto Protocol was a success. The globe, the world leaders met their legend, the the target, which was set under the Kyoto Protocol, to be, uh, I believe it was five five to six percent below two thousand um, nineteen ninety levels by the average over the two thousand eight twenty twelve period. Well, we met that globally. No thanks to Canada because we were way up, but because of very aggressive measures in Europe, and ironically to a lesser extent in the U.S. and Japan and elsewhere. But Canada 
has been, and a lot of this blame goes on to the, the former conservative government, but it's not, some of this blame goes on to Jack Layton. Some of this blame goes on to Paul Martin and Jean Chrétien. You know, we go back in Canada and there was a lot of talk. Finally, we got Canada agreeing to ratify Kyoto. And then we had, um, you know, internal politics within the federal libs. And we have the liberal, the Chrétien, the Martin rivalry. We have a new prime minister. And just as we start to have a new prime minister starting to put in place uh, climate action, we get Jack Layton pulling down the government uh, in the minority situation. We end up with Harper for eight years. Well, that was a dismantling of all leadership in this fail. And then we had to come out of that. And so, you know, there has been a lot of pitfalls on the way, but I do, I truly do feel hopeful now. And I I, I think a lot of that uh, thanks goes to Jonathan Wilkinson, you're now Enercan, who, who really put together a good plan. And I like to think that it, it was mirrored a little bit off what we did here in BC, because there's a lot of similarities between the two of them. And your reference to the UK is an interesting one, because they have, in 2006, passed climate accountability legislation that we managed to pass 15 or, you know, just under 15 years later. Right. And in their politics, conservatives want to tackle this issue in a really serious way. It was conservatives that were, in fact, I think, pushing that Climate Accountability Act in the first place. And so our political environment has been much more difficult. Obviously, you know, has Stéphane Dion been running? Had he successfully become leader, maybe our politics would would have been different subsequently. But the good politics around attacking carbon pricing has has proved really problematic in, in Canadian politics, unfortunately. But here we are, where we now have that climate climate accountability legislation. Your frustration with the harbor targets is correct. So we now have a more ambitious set of targets. 40%, I mean, you you might think 40% is really the target, not 45%, because it's a bit of a cheat. But at at least that takes us to, I would say, if we want to hit that 45%, which I hope is what we're really setting our sights on, that takes us to 400 or so megatons, which is a significant push. And as as I was saying to you before I started recording, I mean, that Climate Accountability Act, then one amendment that we were able to secure. And this was one that mattered more to me, but it was by no later than 2025, the government has to reconsider its ambition, creating one Mm -hmm. final opportunity, one five-year carbon budget uh, before 2030, one final one. And so there's an opportunity to ratchet up our ambition all over again. So my hope is we meet that 45% with policy action before 2025. We then ratchet mm-hmm. up that ambition and more policy action in, in the coming five, in, in that subsequent five years. And But it all depends upon climate action now. So we've got yep. the climate ambition sorted, at least for the moment. We've got the climate accountability piece sorted. And now it comes down to climate action. And so when you look at that climate plan that you endorsed, and you've said it's very comprehensive, it's it, it touches all sectors, but are there particular aspects, if you were in my shoes is the fundamental question. I ask yeah. this of most of my guests to make myself smarter, but if you were in my <laughs> shoes, what would you be pushing on to, to make sure that that is realized as ambitiously as possible and to make sure all gaps are filled? So I, it, it is a challenge at the federal level because it, it much more so than the provincial level, because we have, you have to deal with all the provinces and you have to deal with uh, pricing mechanisms that the federal government didn't come in with a big stick and say, you have to do ours, uh, you have to do something. And if you're not doing something as good as ours, you're going to take ours. And and so I don't think, I mean, we have the plan that is on the paper is actually really good. What matters to me is that it is delivered into, and it is continually being updated, reflected upon, and the accountability language is critical too, so that we can see how we're moving towards that. So I, I actually uh, think that, from a political perspective, what we need now is to encourage those who have made these policy pathways uh, public 
to give them the support and encouragement, carrots and sticks, big carrots to get on with it. Because we can't sit and squabble about all of this. Let's just get on with it. Sure, there will be pitfalls on the way, but let's move on with the pricing. Let's move on with the regulatory framework. Let's move on with the, with the investments in, in public transportation. Let's move on with uh, you know a capping in the oil and gas sector. Let's get that cap coming down. Let's get on with you know investing in innovation. Let's go on with, let's move forward and support. The problem we have in society right now unfortunately, is I, I see a polarization, and I'm sure you do too, is that we have two kind of competing groups, which frankly, I think are not helpful for climate policy. On the, on the, on the far right, we have, you know, the, the same crowd who somehow don't believe in science of vaccination, also don't believe in, you know, global warming, and really think this is a big government's conspiracy to get in our pockets. But so there's the, the QAnon kind of crowd over there on the right, and then we have the social justice super woke warrior on the left who is intolerant of any view other than their view that because they know what's right and everyone else must agree with them. So you have these two kind of extremist views, polar, polarizing, trying to get the public support on issues of climate. One saying there's not an issue and the other saying the world's going to end in eight years. So we have to do everything right now tomorrow. Like what we need is actually more people to speak out like you, uh, like yourself, I tried to do this here, I still try to do this in BC, to speak out and say, okay, this is a really serious problem, but the world isn't going to end in eight years. Every tenth of a degree we don't warm is good. Everybody can do something. We have a really solid plan in place in, 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 at nationally. We have a really solid plan in some provinces. Quebec's good too. We got to work with some other provinces, but let's get on with implementing and let's get on supporting those implement and stop playing political games. Because I am so sick and tired of seeing the political games playing politics, basically with the future of our children, our children's future. I, it drives me nuts. And in particular, what I found most concerning is the rhetoric out of Alberta, particularly their current premier, who frankly, I think has done more to more disservice to his electorate through his positioning on this file than than Albertan population realize. You know, why are is Alberta continue to double continuing to double down on a sector which is clearly dwindling, high sulfur laden bitumen sands? Like we're seeing the shipping industry moving away from high sulfur fuels. We're seeing, you know, a, a decarbonization of our transportation sector. Peter Lougheed would be rolling in his grave if he saw what was going on right now when he, as premier of Alberta, created the Heritage Fund, which was squandered through irresponsible conservative governments giving away money to buy votes. That is, you know, the Kleinbucks, for example. I would hope that Albertans would realize that they need to get on with this program and they can benefit. And I was quite pleased that when Rachel Lotley was premier there because she did. I didn't agree with a lot of what she did, but she did at least address this issue seriously. The recent International Energy Agency Net Zero report really highlighted this idea that the transition is happening with or mm -hmm. without us. And yes. the role of policymakers, those mm -hmm. who care about Albertans, should be focused very much to say, how do we make sure we mitigate the effects of that transition for workers? Yes. And how do we how do we support workers full stop? It's not about supporting yes. particular kinds of work. It's supporting people and their families. Yeah. And so the just 
transition legislation that is set to yeah. come. I've spoken previously with Hassan Youssef about it. He did some work around coal transition yeah. and many of those same principles, no doubt, will apply. But the the dollars are going to be required too. And hopefully there will be a partnership as between provincial and federal mm-hmm. governments. But we in this last election platform put on the table $2 billion for this futures right. fund. And yeah. this, I guess, gets to the question of what's missing or what needs to be done within the agenda that we've already set for ourselves. Because I I do take the point that you want to defend the thoughtful space to say, here's what's reasonable, let's get on with it. But you also don't want to rest on your laurels and not push the government to do as much as they can. And so when I look at that futures fund, I expect we'll need to spend more than $2 billion if we're serious about taking that polarization out of the space and supporting workers. I expect we're going to need to spend more on building retrofits, especially for small and medium-sized enterprises, especially for community buildings. There just isn't enough money that I see in the plan right now. And so in your view, is it the big picture is right, but we really are going to have to bring resources and dollars to bear to make sure we realize those those high-level commitments? So I, I, agree, I agree with you. I mean, if you were to ask what needs to be done, the $2 billion futures fund, okay, we don't know how it's going to be spent. So there's a lot of uh, accountability into the spending of that. The nature, you know, nature-based solutions. What what, are the, what does it mean? It's the details now, right? It's about the details, like scope three emissions. How do we measure scope three emissions for those listening? Uh, you know, we know how to measure emissions from burning a, a gas in our car. We know how to mission, uh, we know how to measure emissions in our household. Scope three emissions are, are are more complex. It's like if you're working for a company, it's the emissions associated with your travel outside of the company to for the company. It's the it's associated with everything your company does. There's a lot of work that needs to be done on 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 getting that on. So that getting uh, understanding that how do we deal with slash in forests? Should we be putting a price on slash? Uh, how do we deal with fugitive emissions? Do we st- do we believe the recently re- uh, revised uh, methane reporting regulations? Um, do we can we do better? How do we deal with uh, landfills moving forward? How do we deal? These are the kind of but but the average person I think. This is in the weeds discussion because policy wonks like me and you will have a great time talking about, you know, best way to perhaps do something and working with, you know, other people. I think most people care about the bigger picture and want to feel comfortable that there is a pathway to ensure accountability to get there. Because as you know, as, as I, as I, uh, I, you know, I was a scientist until I got elected. I still am back as a scientist again. The average voter is not spending all their time worrying about climate change. They're trying to get their kids to school. They got a, they got a job. They've got sick elderly parents. They, they might have uh, you know, a mortgage to pay. They've got real daily issues to deal with, which is why the just transition is so important. And they want government to help them deal with climate change too. Let them, and, and they're there to support government. But let's not shout at people while we're doing that. Yeah, I completely agree. And we, we are fundamentally trustees in the public interest. It's our job yes. for ensure people can go about their days and we look after the things that are collective action problems that can't be solved on an individual level. And, and, and this is the classic example of, of that. When you spoke of polarization, I'd written this down when I was, this is my prep, I was going through your Twitter feed, but you wrote, I can't figure out if I've sold myself out to ecocidal industries or I'm an insane enviro ideologue. And that is really the polarization that you're talking about, where you're somewhere in the middle here, presumably, um, but you're, you're, you're viewed from one extreme to the other. Well, that, that's just what I found. It was literally in the same day. I had two people responding to a tweet I put out, one calling me the socialist ideologue and the other calling me essentially, what was that? I can't remember. You had the, you had the, it was something. Ecocidal uh, industries. 
ecocidal corporate hack. You've sold yourself out, yeah. Yeah, like, okay, I gotta be doing something. I must be doing something right when I'm getting attacked from both sides. But no, I, and, uh, you know, that's one of the hard things about, um, as politicians, we sign up for this stuff, right? Uh, We sign up to have, be criticized. Uh, But, but at some point, you know, I just wish there would be more, you know, criticism is easy. Tell us what you would do instead, right? So, and that's that's kind of a train back science training is, you know, with my grad students, so you talk with them and we talk about problems and you show them some papers and they'd say, well, I don't like that. It's easy to criticize, but you have to be able to say why and what you would do differently and why it's wrong. But that's not what we hear in, in a lot of the civil uh, civic discourse, unfortunately. And Twitter is just like the worst example of all of that because it's, you know, you people have a brain fart and they uh, you know, put it out there and there's no accountability, it seems. Oh, unless, I guess Donald Trump had a couple of tweets taken down. But apart from that, there seems to be very little accountability. I'm on a personal note. I'm asked regularly enough why I'm a liberal. And there are many different reasons. I, I, I just voted differently from the liberal government on a motion as, before we started recording, obviously. But we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll see if you're still a liberal tomorrow. I'm yeah, just joking. Right. But, but in being asked that question, and because I've got a little bit of a record of independence along the way over these last six years, uh, there are many reasons. Climate policy is a really good one, though. Yeah. And I think being in the caucus, pushing within the caucus, but also outside of the caucus, being in the media pushing, being mm-hmm. in parliament pushing, using whatever I can in this small platform that I have to push for faster and further action. Yeah. I do think it has mattered over these six years. I, I'm not responsible for the difference. I think Jonathan Wilkinson oh. has made a massive difference in the responsibility that he's had in, around the cabinet table. But, you know, in my own way, I've been able to push and, and pull and I, th- I think made a difference. Do you miss politics? As a result of that, do you miss being in the the thrust of it all and making a difference in that way? It's a really good question. Um, There's a yes and no answer to that. Some of my best professional experience have been sitting around the table, working, hashing out with George Heyman, who's our Minister of Environment here, uh, uh, political staff, the Premier, John Horgan, um, Carol James, our former finance minister, hashing out policy with them. It was super rewarding. And I think if you, well, I know if you talk to them, they will agree that the process that we went through was powerful and actually led to better public policy. Nobody knows this, but my greatest success in the legislature was being able to broker a deal where every single member of the legislature voted unanimously for the support of changes to the Labor Relations Code and the Employment Standards Act. Can you imagine getting the NDP and the Conservatives vote together on these changes? But it was we were able to do that. We were able to do that by by saying, okay, what are the issues that you're trying to solve? And one of the issues, of course, was there was there's been some uh, employer intimidation during uh, card checks and secret ballots, and so there was pushes to eliminate secret ballots. Well, of course, I, I'm a big fan of the secret ballot because I don't like intimidation, and I think the arguments about intimidation can be used just to turn back on it with these with if you eliminate secret ballot. So we came up with compromises, shorten the the card search line, short, put a tighter tighter regulations for the for the um, review board in order to um, and, and greater consequences if there was a intimidation by the employer, and everyone voted for it. So that I do miss because that was super, I mean the the reward and being able to uh, make a difference in people's lives. There's nothing more rewarding than being an MLA and having someone come to your office and say. I am overwhelmed. I can't deal with this problem. And a couple of phone calls, a couple of emails, you can solve that problem. There's a but to this, though. There is a but to this. If there was, <laughs> if there were eighty, well, when I was in the lead, so eighty-seven. If there were eighty-six other people who believe that politics is a sense of civic duty, 
rather than a career path, rather than a job, then I think we'd have a lot of different policies being put forward. And why I say that is that when you believe politics is a job, you start to get concerned about losing your job because it's your job. And so you start putting in place policy measures, populist ones, to ensure you get reelected so you keep your job. Unfortunately, issues of climate change require bold leadership and require you to think beyond the four-year electoral cycle. So that's one of the reasons why I was so excited by the federal liberal plan that was released in the campaign, and in particular what Jonathan put out in December 2020, and then the, and then the budget and, and so forth. It's because for the first time, I could actually see some chops and a long-term foresight into this problem. And I thought that was deserved, needed to be supported. But I, I, it is, I don't like the fact that people disagree just for the sake of disagreeing. For me, I've always said the best decisions are made when you have a table with a whole bunch of people with a complete different toolkit. We all come to that table with our toolboxes. If we all have the same toolbox, we build something. It's all the same tools. If we all come in with those different toolboxes, we can build something great because you might have a wrench that's metric and mine are not metric. Mine are all imperial, but we can do stuff together if we have different skills. To, and, and that is what I loved in the ledge. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen very much. It does happen more often in minority governments, but still the political games, I I, I hate partisanship. I can't stand it. I, I'm a scientist. Is it a problem? Let's find a solution. You don't like the solution? What would you do instead? Okay, let's compromise, get it done, move on to the next problem. That's how my mind works. That's how scientists works. That's not necessarily conducive to politics 24-7. Though you are, you are speaking my language in, in many respects, I'd vote for you. I mean, I, uh... <laughs> I'd vote for you too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, like my, my volunteers and staff and, and those around me have heard me say this too many times, but, you know, one of the reasons that I was compelled to get involved, this is many years ago now, or it feels mm -hmm. like, you know, you put ideas forward to win elections or you want to yep. win elections to accomplish certain ideas. And yes. I think we should be much more willing and and comfortable. I think yes. we should be very comfortable losing elections if we've run them on the ideas we want to deliver on, and if we've run on the things that matter, and and we're and we're looking out for people. So I, this idea that we always have to win elections, and I think it's a we as liberals at the federal level are not immune from this challenge, obviously. And and I think there is a perniciousness to this idea that well, it's worse to have the other guys there, and so we do have to policies forward that aren't necessarily the best policies, but will help us win. And, and that's a dangerous road to go down sometimes uh, because, you know, be careful who you pretend to be. You are who you pretend to be. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Like I ran with the BC Green Party. Okay. I didn't run in a quest for power. Clearly. <laughs> there had never been a green politician elected in any province in the country ever. And there was only one federal MP at the time. I did it at a point of principle because I felt that the issue of climate change and the, particularly the, the seriousness of it and the, and the opportunity it presents itself was simply not happening in BC discourse. And we were leaders internationally when, under Gordon Campbell back in the uh, early 2000s, mid to, sorry, in the early mid 2000s. You know, I was very involved with his climate action team and to watch his leadership dismantle 
when we started to go all in on LNG here in BC, I couldn't stand by. I couldn't, I couldn't stand in my classes at the university talking to students about this problem, saying, you know, there's three things that every person can do. Each and every one of us have a wallet. So we, when we use our, when we buy things, we're sending a signal to the market about what our values are. So you can make a difference that way. We all vote. You know, if you don't like the people who are making the decisions, get out there and put someone else in who is. Or volunteer in a campaign or run yourself. And the third thing, of course, is education. Tell everyone you know to do one and two. These are, uh, 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 you can only do that so many times until you feel, you know, a sense of hypocrisy that you're not actually following what you're telling others to do. So uh, that's why I ran. But it was very rewarding. Uh, would I do it again? Nah, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd much prefer... Well, I certainly wouldn't do it again with a with a green party um, where there is where you have to like we had nothing. We had to build a party from scratch. Yeah. So for we I mean fundraising was a hundred thousand dollars a year for the entire provincial party. Now, you right? That's I spent more than that on my campaign in 2013. So so we had to to really so that was a lot of work. So I I I didn't enjoy that part of it so much. I did enjoy the policy part. So I'm happy to focus on policy, and I can do that in or outside of the out of the legislature. I think. Well, and one of the reasons that I, in terms of the federal landscape, joined in the nomination for the Liberal Party, there are all sorts. There are all sorts of reasons. I mean, you know, broadly, the values spoke to me. Broadly, you know, there were people in the party over the course of its history that that spoke to me a great deal. And Trudeau created this opportunity for an open nomination process, grassroots, and called yeah. for a new generation of people to get involved. Called for empowering parliamentarians and freer yeah. votes in those commons. And yeah. there are all sorts of reasons. But I I do think in the system in which we have, we could have a long conversation about electoral reform. But in the system in which mm -hmm. we have, there is this constant conversation one has with oneself about how do I do the most I can in the system mm -hmm. in which we live mm -hmm. and in mm -hmm. the first past the post system it's a party system it's, it's party dominated and and uh, what I really value and have valued over the last six years is the push and pull even within the party on mm -hmm. decriminalization or on climate policy I've seen the needle move significantly because we push the mm -hmm. party and we push the government mm -hmm. and and the members and the elected officials and the staff we all push the party to be better and over the course of time it has become a lot better on these issues and so you know, it was so narrow and it was, there was no opportunity to push and pull the party and, and mm -hmm. to improve the party and then improve policy outcomes. It would, it would be even more frustrating than it already well, well, is. That, well, that's the thing you, the thing you say that, I mean, you, you mentioned in this, as we were talking earlier, that you voted against government in earlier today. Um, the fact that you can do that and not be kicked out of caucus immediately is incredibly refreshing. Uh, I, I have never seen that ever happen with any NDP, MLA, or MP anywhere in this country. I'd like to be corrected, but I don't think it's ever happened in BC. I have not seen it happen federally. And that, I know I, the, the importance of being able to speak inside caucuses is, is critical, but being able to stand up for your principles is also critical. I would never, ever be able to be part of a party that wouldn't force me to vote for something that is fundamentally against who I am. I recognize the importance of compromise, but there are certain things that you 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 have to be able to to support. And as we know, our Westminster parliamentary system never started with par parties. It was all about representation and, and and electing an executive council from which you have a governance board. And we have we have turned it into this kind of us versus them political system, which which has its strengths because you can get stuff done, but it has its weakness because it polarizes society. 
And like you, I just wish we had some form of electoral reform. It probably would ensure we would not have majority governments in Canada ever again. And I think, I don't know what your experience is federally, but I can tell you provincially, I think that from the perspective of the population, you get far better governance when you have minority governments than you do when you have majority governments. From the perspective of governing, it's far more difficult to govern in a minority than in a majority, and it's a ton more work and way more stressful, but the end result is way better. So, so I just I agree with that, by the way. Yeah. And oh, not only do I agree with that, yeah. I think the only improvement would be a more permanent change because I think the challenge of minority parlance in our existing system is at some point the goodwill runs out. Everyone mm-hmm. sees the writing on the wall and an election is coming and then they go, well, maybe we can get a majority. And if yeah. that thought process never existed because the system created yeah. minority parlance in a more permanent facing way, then I think that that would change the, at some point you wouldn't have this sort of change to say, well, let's go seek a majority and and yeah. act in a, in a slightly different way as a result. So I, I, I look, I'm, <laughs> I will say over and over well, again. And I agree with you on that as well. So <laughs> now uh, to close uh, and to return to the climate conversation, because you've yeah. said we can see a future emerging whereby we're all driving electric vehicles or using electric yeah. bikes or some other non-vehicular form of transportation yeah. and where those are plugged in at night and those batteries are basically stabilizing the load and the grid using yeah. smart grids. We, you can see a future where we will start to move down this path. And I guess to return to that question of how do we make the most of this 44th parliament, I think the idea is, but correct me if I'm wrong, the idea would be we can see a future, we can see this future before us, yes. but the job of this 44th parliament has to be putting money in budgets and putting policies in place in a more detailed way to implement the, the broad picture commitments we've made, but to ensure that that future happens as quickly as possible. 100% agree, 100%. And I'm quite pleased with the way the executive cabinet has been laid out. I'm quite excited that Jonathan Wilkinson is now with NRCAN because that's a tough file. And a lot of important climate action in that file. A hundred percent. So I think that was very, very wise of uh, the prime minister to have put him there. And and he, under, he's very, he's, he understands the sector, the energy sector, the mining sector. He understands this. And so it's, it's, it, I'm quite hopeful. I really am. And I think you articulated exactly what 44th Parliament needs to do from my individual perspective out here on the island of Vancouver Island here in the Pacific Ocean. Well, in a conversation about climate change, it's, it's good to end on a note of hopefulness. So, so let's end of it there. Course. And my, my only yeah. ask of you would be, as you have ideas along the way, Mm-hmm. And you ever feel like sending me a note to inform my oh, own advocacy? I, I, yeah. I really, I'm only good at this job at times because I lean on people who are much smarter than me. So uh, I consider you one of those people. So please do well, send me notes along the way. My, I do the I, I do the same, and I did the same. The secret to success in politics, the secret to success in science, is to surround yourself with really bright people and let them go, and don't hold them back. And uh, I think, uh, well, I'm really pleased that you're there advocating and I'm happy to help out in any way I can. Thanks, Andrew. Really appreciate it. And really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. If you have any other climate-focused experts you'd like me to host, do send me a note to info at beynate.ca. It's an issue I'd like to host a number of episodes on in the coming months. And a small addendum to our conversation, but 
It's interesting, the political compromise that Weaver spoke about regarding secret ballots in unionization drives was recently overturned by the NDP majority out in BC. So while it is an example of compromise in a minority parliament, it's also equally a testament to how such compromise can be fleeting in our politics at times and the need for sustained participation. Next week, I'll be joined by someone I consider a mentor and friend, Angela Swan, to discuss her transition to the woman she has always known herself to be and the need to protect transgender rights and to expect acceptance. As always, please leave a positive review on your platform of choice. And otherwise, until next time.